This is a Squeeze podcast. We're your shortcut to being informed. Wrap is the week in news and what's coming up. I'm Kate Watson. And I'm Claire Kimball. That rolled off the tongue. This podcast is now called The Weekly Wrap. Claire, same podcast, same content, same hosts, just a name that better reflects what it actually is. Yeah, The Weekly Wrap. I like it. I don't know if there's, I believe there's no other podcast called The Weekly Wrap. I don't think there is. <laughs> Probably should have Googled that. No, we did. We checked it. It's The Weekly Wrap by The Squeeze. Claire, we're kicking off with a potato story today. Uh, I could not be more delighted that we're rebranding a podcast and we're starting with a potato story. <laughs> That's particularly exciting for me. Uh, of course, we're going to get into the local fallout from Israel and Gaza as well. Yeah, and then we'll zoom out and talk about the, the global political context we saw this week, President Biden in Israel. There's a whole lot to get across when it comes to that story. We're also going to talk about the week ahead with our Prime Minister heading to Washington. Yeah, lots going on on the political front. Um, Kate, we've got some tips on how to deal with linen as yeah, well. Yeah, I really enjoyed that article. We'll talk a little bit about that. Let's get into it. So as we said, Claire, we start the podcast today in Tasmania, the north of Tasmania to be precise, to the site of where this week the big potato fell. It was the most clicked link out of our Squiz Today newsletter this week. People after my own heart squizzes. <laughs> People were very interested in the plight of said potato. And Kate, this is a story with a twist. It's got a political twist. Yeah, you um, enlightened me to um, the knowledge that, in fact, the potato was known as Kenny the Kennebec, so that's a variety of spud. It was built 40 years ago by the family of Tasmanian Premier Jeremy Rockcliffe. Yeah, it's a bit of a local land mark in that part of the world. It fell over after a truck backed into the post uh, and then there were some high winds. <laughs> God, a comedy of errors. Anyway, they promised to restore it, so don't panic. So it's coming back. It's coming back. It's a funny looking thing. I think <laughs> yes. they even admitted the Rockcliffe family that it needed a little bit of work. It's totally daggy, Oz, Tazzy, yeah, love it. big potato, big yep. things. Yeah, there you go. Israel Claire. Yeah. Let's change tact a little bit. We're heading into week three of the fallout from the Hamas attack on October 7 that happened. Very broadly where things are at is the world is waiting to see if, when, Israel will invade Gaza. Last week in Saturday Squiz, now the weekly wrap, we spoke about the local fallout from those protests in Sydney. This conversation about how our government should be responding on the issue of Israel continued in Parliament this week. Yeah, it did. Of course, Parliament was sitting this week after a bit of a hiatus. So that facilitates these kinds of debates. And mm. on Monday, the Greens called for peace in the region, but more controversially, they didn't support a motion to condemn Hamas. And what they wanted was an amendment to that motion to label Israel's retaliation a humanitarian catastrophe. The Greens critics say that that shows that they don't fully appreciate what Hamas has done and also Israel's right to retaliate. And look, they seem to be in the minority when it comes to the West's response. The Prime Minister, the opposition leader both condemned Hamas. They were vocal in stating that Israel has a right to defend itself. Stuck in the middle of this debate is the Palestinian people who live in Gaza. They're the ones that 
that have to flee or risk being caught up in any Israeli offensive. Interesting to see, Claire, one Labor frontbencher, so a senior member of our parliament and a Muslim, Ed Husick, says he thinks that the Palestinian people have been forgotten in all of this, backed up by his colleague Anne Ali. Yeah, and of course this is the crux of it. We don't really know what happens when it's going to escalate in its response. There's a lot to play out still. And I guess it's good to pause here because in my researching this and you're researching this, you've got to get your bearings constantly. So remember, Hamas are a militant group that controls Gaza. Israel wants to destroy Hamas. Gaza is occupied by Palestinians. They have claim over parts of the territory that Israel occupies. It's complex. Yeah, it's very complex. So then we get to Joe Biden's visit and where the United States lines up. Um, Biden is very, very clear in America's support for Israel. That's something that he's emphatic about. Mm. But he also spoke very directly to Israel's leaders, uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and also the military leaders there, and asked them not to allow the rage over what Hamas did in those attacks to blur their objectivity. Mm. It was quite a powerful message because he referred to the mistakes that the United States made, he says, in the wake of the 9-11 attacks. Um, Of course, what he also highlighted was the need for This sort of distinction between the Palestinian people and the Hamas rulers, a lot of our leaders are at pains to condemn Hamas, but they also make it clear that not all Palestinians support Hamas. Yeah, so from Joe Biden, from a lot of world leaders, it's a please everyone chill message. That's kind of the vibe here in Australia. Even Mike Burgess, our head of ASIO, so our intelligence organisation, he weighed in saying, can everyone just be careful what they say? We just don't want to inflame things any further. On the Biden trip, it was brief, but as I said, it was designed to try and find a way to de-escalate this through diplomacy. It was not helped by the fact that there was a hospital missile strike in Gaza just before he arrived. Yeah, and what the Gaza officials say is that about 500 Palestinians were killed in that strike. It was a huge blast. Hamas blamed Israel for the strike. Israel said it had evidence that another group, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, fired the missile. Biden said that it appeared the other team, that was his quote, Mm. not Israel, was responsible for the explosion. But Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, Turkey, Bahrain, Jordan and Egypt blamed Israel. It's been a big few days of all of this coming together. Big protests as well in some of those 22 Arab nations, uh, including those ones that you mentioned. Mm. They very, very clearly blame Israel for that strike and also the broader conflict. You can see things building. Oh, yeah, exactly right. And I guess the other thing this week was the fact that Biden was actually supposed to go to Jordan. Mm. Um, He was going to meet with the leaders of Jordan, Palestine and also Egypt, but that was cancelled. Cancelled. Go on. Yeah. Tell us more. I will. So according to the White (laughs) House. I will. I will. According to the – I don't need an invitation. Um, According to the White House, that decision was mutual, that Mm. they decided after that blast that it was a good thing because it was such a flashpoint. Um, That feeling that the meeting wouldn't actually be a good use of their time at that particular moment. Mm. It was a very small window that Biden was actually in the region, so it had to happen then or not, so it didn't. Um, But all of those players say that they're remaining in very close contact. And, I mean, we talk about the US a lot, Claire, the leader of the free world and and all of that, the most powerful nation, all Mm. of those things. But the Brits have a long history in this region. We won't do a history lesson, but (laughs) um, it's worth looking up. British PM Rishi Sunak was in Israel yesterday. You and Alex talked about this in the Squiz Today podcast yesterday. 
He was trying on the same thing. He was backing Israel but calling for calm. Interesting also that UK Foreign Secretary James Cleverly will meet leaders in Egypt, Turkey and Qatar in the coming days, all with the aim of finding a peaceful resolution in Israel and Gaza. Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State, also did the rounds of those nations. Yeah, he sure did. So there's a bit of quiet or quieter, I guess, diplomacy happening by some very, very big figures Mm. when Joe Biden goes to something that's massive. So talks are still happening and in-person talks are still happening, which are said to be very, very important at this particular point in time. Everyone seems to be throwing everything at it. Mm. So the idea is that if there is a big war, if there's a big conflict in this part of the world, if things do escalate to that level, it will be devastating. There will be other nations drawn in and there will be catastrophic sort of casualties across civilian populations. So the thing I guess to know is that they're saying that a diplomatic response though, is getting harder and harder to achieve. And of course, to bring it back to our government here, they've advised people not to travel to places like Lebanon. Yeah, seems like great advice. Claire, as all that was happening, there was the small matter of Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping hanging out. Hanging out, yeah, just that little thing. (laughs) So there was a summit in Beijing that was marking the 10th anniversary of the Belt and Road Initiative. That's that program where... China has put billions of dollars into a foreign infrastructure program to encourage trade with China. Um, There's lots of criticism about that program because nations are getting way over their heads in debt. Anyway, it was a bit of a... We have talked about that before and it's important because people will recognise this Belt and Road concept because it's been in the news here. It was something that Daniel Andrews had signed up to. It was quite controversial. And then we get into like the Pacific regions and these nations that have taken debt from China and whether they can repay that or not is a big, you know, political conversation. It's the way that China is having conversations and sort of stretching their influence yeah. through this program. It's the main game. Belt so, and Road. Good Belt thing and to Road. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> look, and of course, it was a rallying point um, with Russia and China coming together this week. Um, so whilst all of that's going on, of course, we need to kind of check in on Ukraine. So you reminded me, and I mean, we've just glazed over, you know, Vladimir and Xi Jinping hanging out, but um, on any that, other week would have been on any other week a would have been a story. huge story, yeah. and, it, and it still was. And I guess it was just, um, I think one of our colleagues put it really neatly. It's like this axis of the world. There's one half doing this, and the other half are over mm. here doing this, and um, it's just something to watch. You in all of this have been saying, "What about Ukraine? What's going on there?" So let's check in. Yeah. So to check in on that, what they're saying is that that sort of counter-offensive that we've talked a lot about this year that they eventually got to in Ukraine. They've been pushing back on Russia, but they haven't made a lot of gains, not in territory anyway. They're certainly hanging on, but they're not actually getting the ground back that they were hoping, except this week they started using long-range missiles that the United States has provided, long-range weapons. And it's said to be a game changer. We'll have to wait and see. Already on Friday morning, there were some reports that they are actually making some progress. So we're heading into nearly, it's nearly two years since yeah. this conflict started, since it's Russia, Starting Ukraine. Starting next year, yeah. Yeah, amazing. There's no certain on numbers on this, but I was staggered to see the death toll cited by US intelligence on the Russian side. Almost 400,000 troops have died. That's compared to about 70,000 Ukrainian soldiers, Claire. Yeah, they're almost half a million dead. It's just just extraordinary. Um, I know, though, were also things that we've sort of been talking about that isn't quite the main game, but 
big events in our region anyway, the Kiwi election. So we forgot to mention this last week. We mentioned it the week before, but then last week we were so caught up in the referendum and what was going to happen that we forgot to remind people to tune in to the Kiwi election, Claire. Yep. You were able to do that. I was able to do that because the referendum result was over and done with pretty early and we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, so we tuned into the New Zealand election result. And love an election in a time zone where you can actually get a result at a reasonable hour. <laughs> That seems really quite appropriate. So, And look, what happened, of course, was a very close election when it comes to actually determining who's going to get government and what that is going to look like. What was absolutely certain is that Labor has lost half their seats. Half their seats. And this is what was sort of expected. It's what they call a bloodbath Mm. in um, political reporting. The new Prime Minister will be Christopher Luxon. He has to do a deal as he doesn't have a majority, as you said. One of the negotiating points, Claire, could be a referendum on the Treaty of Waitangi. It's an interesting point, of course, because of our referendum and the process that we've just gone through. Of course, that treaty is really a fundamental part of Kiwi life where it's the government's arrangement with their Maori population. So it'll be interesting to see where that one lands. Mm. The negotiations are still going on so that he can actually form government. I was interested to read a little bit more about him himself though, Claire. He's only been in parliament for one term. Yeah, one term. And he went into Parliament with the sole purpose of becoming Prime Minister. Quite the thing to do. Yeah, and that sort of goes to a bit of his background. He's the former CEO of Air New Zealand. Um, It's hard to think that Alan Joyce might, you know, make a run (laughs) at Parliament to become Prime Minister (laughs) as the head of our national carrier. I can't quite imagine that pathway quite yet. (laughs) Maybe Joe Aston. Oh, Joe Aston. (laughs) Those who know what we're talking about will know what we're talking about. (laughs) I'd vote for Joe Aston. He's awesome. Oh, boy. (laughs) And look, what Luxon did was take over a very dysfunctional national party. They were really struggling even just a couple of years ago. They've went through three leaders in as Mm. many years. So he's led them to a win. Quite the thing to do, as I said. If you want to read more about him, we'll pop some links in your episode notes. That was big for New Zealand this week. The failure of the voice referendum was where our national conversation was at. Claire, where to begin? Oh, gee. Where do we begin? So, uh, look, we know the result. It was pretty clear. It was emphatically no. Um, The ACT was the only jurisdiction to vote in favour. It's shaping up to be 60-40 in favour of the no vote. Yeah, I was comparing this to the last referendum in 1999 on whether Australia should become a republic. That was 55% no, 45% yes. So this was more emphatic. What the result means really depends on what you read and who you listen to. Yeah, you pointed all of this out to me because I've been focused on probably more Israel and Gaza this week, getting into the deep analysis of this sort of thing. Mm. So, yeah, it does really depend on the sources that you're sort of choosing uh, and we like to graze across all of it just to hear what people are saying. So um, we haven't really heard much from the Yes campaign, of course, because our prominent Indigenous leaders have observed that week of silence. They say that now is the time for silence, to mourn, to deeply consider the consequences of the outcome. Lots of analysis, though, will actually come when we start to hear from them about what they want to do next. Yeah, and plenty that's already come out, especially about the amount of money the Yes campaign had, the amount of corporate support has also been an interesting point of conversation this week. Plenty of big organisations lined up behind the Yes vote and the fallout from that is the conversation around the disconnect between them and their shareholders, their staff. Yeah, yeah. Big employers, of course, have really been a part of this whole debate. Telstra and Qantas are just a couple of examples. Um, We've had two reads that you've really 
drawn to my attention anyway mm. about the referendum. The first one is really interesting. It's in The Australian. It was by Janet Albrechtson. It steps through the no campaign. Of course, she's got great context into that kind of part of the world. Yeah. Um, and exactly their insights into why things went the way that they went. Um, it's a really good understanding of that organisation and how things yeah. went, that conversation. Um, and then the other one, Kate, that you pointed to was from Catherine Murphy and Josh Butler from The Guardian. They've done a piece about what went wrong for the Yes campaign. They're really worth reading if you have the time. We'll put them in your episode notes. If you don't get to it, that's okay, we understand. <laughs> We're here for busy people. The main point seems to be on the case of the No campaign that they knew they needed Jacinta Price. It also was interesting to read that it took a little bit of time to get Dutton lined up behind the no side of the argument. And in the case of the analysis about the yes campaign, Claire, Dutton deciding to go no was a huge blow. That article called it a body blow, but it also goes into the campaign strategy. They say that they were slow to prosecute their arguments, that they weren't cohesive. I found the analysis on the motivations of yes and no voters fascinating mm. as well. The research saying that not all voters were a hard no. And in fact, campaign research inside the Yes campaign suggests around half of the No cohort were more reluctant than firmly No. Mm. On the flip side, the Yes voters were hard Yes voters. We've had conversations between ourselves, with our friends, with our family, and that sounds about right. We don't know the answer though. No. But as you said, there's going to be a lot more to talk through and a real moment in history for Australia. Coming up this week, as we said, Anthony Albanese is heading to the US for a planned state visit. This really crept up on us. <laughs> we kind of nearly forgot. Haven't packed our suitcase. No, we're not To invited. go for the state dinner to the White House. <laughs> Just got too much on. <laughs> yeah, it's a big, official, major, major trip. A state, yeah. a state visit. You thought it might be canned because there's so much going on in um, well, US Parliament. Look. They've well. got a budget crisis coming up. Yeah. They've got stuff happening in Israel and Gaza. They've got no speaker. There's a bit going on. How are you going to sit down for a fancy dinner? I feel like they'll just be like... With your mate. Oh, anyway. No. Anyway, whatever. I mean, we'll, we'll find out. Yes. Anyway, <laughs> the quick and dirty, though, on what's happening in yeah, Congress. Please. So the Republicans, of course have the majority in the House of Reps. So it should be a really easy path to picking the Speaker. We've talked about that when you gave me the floor a couple of weeks ago yep. to explain all of that. Um, that Speaker position wields a lot of political power in the United States. Um, they dumped Kevin McCarthy, who was – that was the start of this month – won't go into that. Um, they picked his deputy, Steve Scalise, to replace him. Um, then he got done over by his own party, the Trump faction. So we had a whole segment in the podcast last week about that guy, but we had to cut it out because then he got Because then, he, was then he got done. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then the guy behind doing him over, Steve Scalise, is a guy called Jim Jordan. He's having a go, but his colleagues won't back him either. So they really have to get their crap together to try and find someone because the Congress doesn't work without a speaker. So they're trying to, for example, get through the Congress aid for Israel and Gaza. $100 billion. And they can't do that without a speaker. No, they can't. Yeah, okay. It's so a there's... process thing. They actually need someone in that chair. So they're talking about basically rewriting the rule book to make it work because there are crisis points coming up. There's a lot in what you just said that will be in the news next week, yes. not just the Anthony Albanese visit, but all of that as well. <laughs> Britney Spears's memoir is out next week. Question is whether we already know all the juicy bits because I was reading a lot about it going, what more is there? 
I didn't read a lot about that this week just because I feel so sad about all of it. It's a sad story. It really is. Yeah, it yeah. seems like she really has been through it, not just in recent times, but like we're talking about a couple of decades worth of pain and hurt. Yeah. I don't know. Do you follow her on Instagram? I do. Yeah, yeah. I do. I do. And it's, yeah, look, as long as she's happy and safe. Yeah, so that will be a thing though because there's going to be quite a bit coming out around that memoir. Um, A few special interest events. Melbourne Fashion Week starts next week and from fashion to farming, Claire, the National Farmers Federation annual conference is on in Canberra next week. These are both big ticket items for those involved, Mm. for those sectors um, of our economy, our community, I guess. Yeah, they're huge. Um, Another thing getting a lot of attention is the HSC. For those in the middle of it, all the very best. Remember HSC time? Yeah, isn't ATAR now? ATAR exams? Well, that's the result they get, but I think the exams are still called Still the, the HSC. HSC. How did you go in the HSC? It was VCE Claire? in Victoria back in the day. Anyway, um, I did fine. Thank you for asking. <laughs> I've been trying to get a, a, I've been trying to get Claire to tell me what how she actually went. Were you a diligent, conscientious student or were you no. distracted? No, look, I was okay to a point. I just wasn't that much interested, to be honest. I did enough to do what I needed to do. What subjects did you do? I did modern history, legal studies, general studies, studies. um, lots of English. Um, We had to do maths at school. I was terrible at maths. Yeah, I dropped maths. Yeah, but I had had a lot of fun in maths. I just thought people might be interested listening. If you want to run a media company one day... (laughs) Don't need to be good at math. (laughs) (laughs) Look, it was one of those aptitude things. All of my aptitude courses said that I would be a good lawyer. Oh, yeah. Which I think is why I liked politics. Yeah, yeah. And because I wasn't diligent enough to actually get into law. And thank goodness I didn't because I think, yeah, I'd be a complete slave in law. I think I'd be working 100 hours a week. You would. And be absolutely I think you're right where you were supposed to be. I kind of think so. I think you are. Things kind of work out. Yeah. What about you? Oh, I just wanted to be a netballer. Clearly that didn't happen. (laughs) (laughs) But I think the same lines. I think I did a lot of English, a lot of writing. Yeah. Um, And the other thing, when I was a young, young girl, I remember I wanted to be the newsreader and now look here I am here we are that's amazing (laughs) enough about us let's get into squeeze recommends Claire, I accidentally watched Take 5 on ABC this week and I didn't mean accidentally in that I wasn't interested to begin with but I was fortunate to have the TV on at the right time. Zan Rowe is the host. She's great. I think we've raved about her before. She is so good. We have. We have raved about yeah, her before. Yeah, I, I just think she's terrific at what she does. Yeah, she is. So Take 5 was a podcast, now it's a TV show where she interviews a celebrity. The vehicle to have the conversation with them is their five favourite songs. The interview this week was with Natalie Imbruglia, Great chat. Highly recommend that. I've been thinking about Natalie Imbruglia because, of course, of all the Daniel Johns and Silverchair Silverchair. stuff. I've been wondering how she is, so it was nice that she popped up. Mm. Um, Kate, you and I are fans and friends of Lauren Sams. She's the fashion editor for the Financial Review. Um, She's someone we've been lucky enough to meet because she's a squeezer. Yeah, thanks, Lauren. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And she wrote a piece yesterday about linen. And it really resonated with me. I think it does with you too. Um, Lauren says that she can't wear linen because it makes it look too crumpled. She feels very undone when she's wearing linen as much as she enjoys the texture and the fabrics. Um, But she's got some tips from experts about how to get linen looking good without ironing it every two seconds. I really enjoyed this article. We'll put it in your episode notes. It's very relevant to me at the moment because I'm selling my house and I have to do the beds really nicely and they're Uh, linen. Do I have to iron it or is it okay to look a little bit, you know, a little bit crumpled? That coastal chic. Yeah, I think I I went for coastal chic. (laughs) 
think it was easier than ironing sheets. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> you know what, Claire? We have some great advertisers at The Squiz. So in Squiz Press, very quickly before we finish the podcast this week, I want to give a shout out to a longtime advertiser of ours, and that is Uber. Those who have listened to the podcast this week will know they have an initiative with Red Cross where anyone who lives in our major city's metro areas can get your old clothes picked up and delivered to the nearest Red Cross shop for free using their package service. That's today, nine o'clock till four o'clock. Get on it. Fantastic initiative. So tell me how I do it. So open the Uber app between, as I said, 9am and 4pm your local time. Navigate to the package option, click send a package, enter Red Cross shop as the destination. Someone will come in an Uber, pick up your clothes and take them to the nearest Red Cross shop. That's amazing. Do you know, I've got some other interesting information about this. Give it to us. (laughs) I thought this was fascinating and I'm guilty. (laughs) They have research which says that Gen Z on average hold approximately $681 worth of unused clothing in their wardrobes. Millennials, the worst offenders, which is me. I think I'm a millennial. Yeah, you would be. Yeah, $1,171 worth of clothing that they don't wear in their wardrobes. (laughs) Gen X, that's you. Not as bad as you. Not as bad, $1,000 worth of clothing. And boomers have $800 worth of unused clothing. Clothing that others need. Kate, back in the day when I had a lovely wardrobe and worked in corporate, that would have just been a couple of pairs of shoes for me. Well, now, anyway, get, now, into your, get into your wardrobe. Now I think my whole wardrobe is worth $1,000, so <laughs> <laughs> I can give it all away. Get on it. <laughs> Thanks again to Uber. This was not an ad. I just wanted to give them a shout out because they are just such a great advertiser for us and we really appreciate their support. That's it for the weekly wrap. Weekly wrap, done. Catch you next week. 